it's dark in here all of a sudden. You are the light. Okay. <laughs> all right, hopefully one of those made their way to at least every region of the room. I think there probably aren't enough for, for everybody to have one, but I'll, uh, I'll shoot this to Father Andrew and he can pop it up on the website in case anybody wants to consult it later. Um, let's open by praying together the prayer at the top in bold. This is the part of the litany that we're reflecting on this morning. Let's pray together. For Ambrose, Augustine, Gregory, and Jerome, who contend for the truth of the gospel, for Basil, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Athanasius, who enable us to reflect on the mystery, let us rejoice with thankful hearts and glorify our God in whom they put their trust. Amen. So uh, there's kind of an embarrassment of riches there this morning. Uh, there were seven saints uh, mentioned by name there in this bit of the litany, and our esteemed catechist and I agreed that seven saints was just going to be too many saints for the morning. Uh, so, so Matt asked me to focus on St. Augustine as a representative of the Western Church uh, and St. Gregory of Nyssa, who is actually the younger brother of the Basil, who is mentioned there, as a representative of the Eastern Church. Uh, and, and the main question that, that I'd like to think about this morning is what it means to do the things that are mentioned in the litany there. What does it mean to contend for the truth of the gospel? What does it mean to enable us to reflect on the mystery? Uh, and my suggestion to y'all is going to be that those aren't really two separate things. Uh, one done by Western saints, the other done by Eastern saints. Uh, but in fact, the two of those go hand in hand with one another. Um, I'm going to start out with St. Gregory of Nyssa uh, and then say a little bit about Augustine, uh, since Augustine, I think, is probably more familiar to many of us. We talk about him almost every Sunday. Um, for those of you who don't know me, um, I'm Adam Wood. I've been a, a parishioner here for about, about seven years now. Um, some of you have known me for, for a long, long time. Um, but for those of you who don't know me, uh, those of you who are here for the first time maybe, um, I'm kind of a shy person and, and don't do a very good job zooming up and introducing myself after the service. But since I'm up here in front already, let me welcome you here uh, if you're here for the first time. Um, we'll see how much we, of this we get through. I, I realize I've, I've put quite a lot on this handout here. Um, if we don't get through all of it, that, that, that's fine by me. Um, for starters, St. Gregory of Nyssa, um, I put his dates on the handout there. He was born around 335 AD in Cappadocia, which is kind of smack dab in the middle of, of present-day Turkey. Um, he came from a big Christian family. Uh, he had five sisters and four brothers. Uh, we know about some of them, not, not all of them. Um, in particular, we know about his oldest brother, Basil, uh, who is mentioned above in our litany. 
who is sometimes called Basil the Great and sometimes called Basil of Caesarea because he became Bishop of Caesarea uh, after finishing up his philosophical studies in Athens, in Greece. So as the oldest son of the family, Basil was sent off and received kind of a top flight philosophical education at the premier university of his day. Um, well, at, while he was at school, he met another Gregory, also from Cappadocia, uh, from the town of, of Nazianzen. Um, and this other Gregory became best friends with Basil. So you had Basil the Great, you had Gregory of Nazianzus. Um, upon finishing up his studies and becoming bishop, uh, Basil ordained his younger brother, also Gregory, as bishop of Nyssa in Turkey. So you had Basil, you had Gregory of Nazianzus, and you had Gregory of Nyssa. And those three are usually known as the Cappadocian fathers, because all three of them were from this part of Turkey called, called Cappadocia. Um, Gregory of Nyssa, the one that we're going to be primarily focusing on today, uh, was evidently a lousy bishop. Uh, Nyssa was kind of a backwater. Uh, Gregory didn't really want to be there. Uh, his time as bishop was kind of spent in, in controversies with his congregation. Um, so he wasn't a very good leader of the church in that regard. Um, but while he received no formal schooling himself, he was probably taught by his older brother Basil, uh, he managed to become thoroughly acquainted with Greek philosophy, and he became the most formidable theologically of the Cappadocian fathers. And that's the reason that I'm kind of focusing on, on, on him today. Um, the other of Gregory's siblings, you had Basil, the other sibling who we know a fair bit about is his older sister, Macrina, uh, mostly from the biography of her that Gregory himself wrote. Uh, he loved his sister Macrina uh, deeply. Um, he writes about her in the life of Macrina. He says, so fair was she that even painter's hands could not do justice to her comeliness. And in consequence, a great swarm of suitors seeking her in marriage crowded round her parents. Um, but uh, the guy that she became betrothed to uh, died right away. Um, and afterwards, uh, at a pretty young age, she became a sort of abbess, uh, leading a group of uh, celibate women in spiritual life together. And that's how she spent most of her days. Um, evidently, she was pretty well educated, too, uh, because Gregory tells us it was actually she who saw to the education of their youngest brother, uh, who was named Peter. Uh, and Gregory writes that Macrina educated him on a lofty system of training, practicing him from infancy in holy studies, so as not to give his soul leisure to turn to vain things. Thus, having become all things to the lad, father, teacher, tutor, mother, giver of all good advice, she produced such results before the age of boyhood had passed, when he was yet a stripling in the first bloom of tender youth, he aspired to the high mark of philosophy. Um, I, I, sh I, sh I should warn everybody, uh, 
I teach at Wheaton College too, and I'm a, I'm a philosophy professor. So you'll hear a little bit about philosophy today. Um, all right, so here was the theological situation in Gregory's day, kind of moving us from biography to the theological meat. Um, everybody in Gregory's day was worked up about the Trinity. Here's what, here's what Gregory writes about his situation. He said, if you ask for change, someone philosophizes to you on the begotten and the unbegotten. If you ask the price of bread, you are told the father is greater and the son inferior. If you ask, is the bath ready? Someone answers, the son was created from nothing. <laughs> so, uh, so evidently the Trinity, the nature of the Trinity was just on everybody's minds at this point. Um, why was that? You know, we, we no longer, uh, run into this situation at the grocery store um, or at the uh, Here, Here's a very short version of, of, of what was going on. I hope it's not an entirely inaccurate version. Um, uh, Sibelius, a heretic, thought that there weren't any real differences between the persons of the Trinity. Yeah, you've got Father, you've got Son, you've got Holy Spirit. Um, but there aren't any real differences between them. These are sort of just three different aspects of what is, in reality, one and the same. Um, Arius, another heretic, uh, objected vehemently to that heresy. And in order to preserve the real differences between the persons of the Trinity, um, Arius decided that God the Son and God the Holy Spirit couldn't be God to the same extent or in the same way as God the Father is God. Sibelius's heresy is usually called modalism nowadays, and Arius's heresy is usually called subordinationism um, or, or just Arianism. Uh, and, and the church decided that both of these were very bad ideas. Um, at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, uh, the church staunchly condemned Arianism, uh, issuing kind of a rough draft of the creed that we said together a few minutes ago, or that you will say in the, in the following service. Um, the original Nicene Creed from 325 AD mostly parallels what we say um, up to the point where it says that Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Um, but then it kind of briefly goes, uh, and we believe in the Holy Ghost. And then it skips to a whole bunch of anti-Aryan anathemas. So it says, you know, and if anybody says blah, 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 let him be anathema. And if anybody says this other thing, let him be anathema, and so forth. Um, so that's what the original Nicene Creed said. Very little on the Holy Spirit. Um, bunch of anti-Aryan anathemas. It makes no bones about that. Here's the problem. Um, it's one thing to say that the Son is true God, that he is begotten, not made, that he is of one being or of one substance with the Father. The Greek word there is homoousios, with the Father. Um, it's entirely a different thing, though, to understand what on earth these locutions might mean, I take it. 
you know, when we say every Sunday of one being with the Father, what is that exactly? Um, and without some degree of understanding there, the Arian threat subordinating the Son to the Father continued to lurk around. It never really went away after the Council of Nicaea. Um, Saint Athanasius, also mentioned in our little litany there, who was the pro-Nicene Bishop of Alexandria, kept having over and over again to flee into exile for his life because the Arian party in the church was so strong that they kept coming after him, trying to oust him and lock him up or even kill him. Um, the story is that he's fleeing into exile and his pursuers caught up with him and they hollered out, have you seen the bishop? And, and Athanasius hollers back, yes, he is not far from here. Uh, which isn't a lie. Um, uh, at any rate, that was the situation uh, in Gregory's day and up in Cappadocia where he lived, uh, an Arian heretic named Eunomius was going around pretending to be a formidable philosopher and theologian and claiming that he had a tightly argued demonstration that Arianism, subordinationism, must be the right way of looking at the Trinity. So he argued like this. I put it you know, in a simple one, two, three on your handout there. Um, by definition, to be truly God, something must be changeless. It must have no beginning. It must depend on nobody to be truly God. Yet, by definition, to be begotten, a son must come into existence at some point, must depend on his father. Therefore, God the Son, God the Son, isn't true God, which is exactly what the Arians want you to believe, contrary to what we say in the Creed every Sunday. Um, well, the great contribution of the Cappadocian fathers was to argue against Eunomius and the other heretics uh, of, of the day. Um, each of them, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, wrote a treatise entitled Against Eunomius, this Arian heretic running around in, in their, their part of the world in, in Cappadocia. Um, Gregory of Nyssa in particular, who we're focusing on today, uh, I would say fought fire with fire uh, by drawing on his philosophical studies, uh, in particular on Platonic philosophy, in order to combat that philosophical argument that, that I just read to you. Um, two books in particular stand out as important uh, in Gregory of Nyssa's background, I think. Um, the first one worth mentioning is, is a dialogue called the Phaedo, by, by Plato. Um, this is a dialogue set during Socrates' last hours on earth. So Socrates is in prison. Uh, he's about to be executed on charges of impiety and corrupting the youth, but he's happy. And everybody's like, what gives Socrates? Um, and Socrates says, well, philosophy is preparing for death 
by focusing attention on eternal things like beauty itself with a capital B rather than on particular beautiful bodies uh, and also ignoring pesky bodily desires since death according to Socrates uh, is just the freeing of souls from their imprisonment in bodily cages Socrates isn't afraid to die um, and it's a good thing too because at the end of the dialogue they execute him by giving him hemlock to drink um, and if you look at the first two texts on the handout so I've got some notes and then I've got a bunch of texts and if you look at the first two texts you'll find uh, Plato in the Phaedo uh, writing about what I, what I just described there. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to read them out right now. Um, the second book that I think is important in the background here to Gregory of Nyssa uh, is, is a book written some centuries later by a fellow called Plotinus, uh, The Enneads, uh, which is supposedly a development of Platonic ideas. Uh, what happens in this book is that you've got the one in the beginning and from the one there eternally emanates intellect from which there eternally emanates soul which enters into matter giving life to everything on earth. Um, and emanation here, Plotinus says, is sort of like light shining out from the sun. So you've got the one first, and it's like the source of all that uh, light. And because it is so unified, it's really hard for us to think about or talk about accurately. Uh, we can really only begin to do so, Plotinus says, by shutting out our bodily senses and focusing our, our, our attention within by a sort of intense introspective activity. So, so there, there's Plotinus. Um, how does Gregory of Nyssa make use of these resources? Um, here's step one of his program, I think. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa drew on Plotinus's claims about the unspeakability and unthinkability of the one in order to attack the first premise of Eunomius's argument there. Uh, Eunomius, recall, had said, by definition, God must be this, that, and the other thing. Gregory of Nyssa says, you know what? We are not able to define God in the way that your argument supposes. Uh, Instead, if you look at text D on your handout there, um, Gregory of Nyssa says, the divine essence is ineffable and incomprehensible. For it is plain that the title of father doesn't present to us the essence, but only indicates the relation to the son. If it were possible for human nature to be taught the essence of God, he wouldn't have suppressed the knowledge upon this matter, but the knowledge of the divine essence is beyond our power. While when we have learned that of which we are capable, we stand in no need of the knowledge beyond our capacity, as we have in the profession of faith, the doctrine delivered to us, what suffices for our salvation. Right, so there's step one of Gregory's program. Uh, you Arians suppose that we can kind of uh, you know, tightly define God 
so as to say these things about him, turns out the divine nature can't be grasped in that way. So that kind of pushes us in the direction of uh, what's usually called apophatic theology, trying to talk about God by saying what he is not. And Gregory of Nyssa is an important forerunner of apophatic theologians like Pseudo-Dionysius and John of Damascus and many others in, in, the, in the tradition of, of Christian theology, particularly in, in the eastern part of the church. Um, Gregory is also a fan of, of mysticism, of mystical theology, of the idea that we know God most fully through some kind of direct connection to God that goes beyond reasoning about him. So Gregory writes this book called The Life of Moses, in which he's talking about Moses' relationship with God, Moses' knowledge of God, uh, and he says, this is in, in text E on your handout, kind of in the middle there, he says uh, about Moses, knowing God in the darkness on top of Mount Sinai, he says, leaving behind everything that is observed, not only what sense comprehends, but also what the intelligence thinks it sees, it keeps on penetrating deeper until by the intelligence's yearning for understanding, it gains access to the invisible and incomprehensible, and there it sees God. This is the true knowledge of what is sought. This is the seeing that consists in not seeing, because that which is sought transcends all knowledge. Um, being a philosopher, I'm not particularly drawn to mysticism myself. I find these sorts of locutions like the seeing that is not seen kind of confusing and, you know, well, mystifying. So, so, so may, maybe you can talk me into this way of looking at things more, more when we when we converse about this stuff. Um, for Gregory, drawn as he was to mysticism, he recognized that we need to do a, a bit more, more than this to, to really combat the, the Arian heresy that, that, that he was opposed to. Uh, so going beyond merely saying, you know, God can't be known in these ways, or he can only be known in this kind of, this, this kind of mystical way, uh, he also offers us a sort of model for thinking about the relationship between the divine nature on the one hand, God the Father on the other hand, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, and here's what he gives us. If you look at text F there, um, uh, Lydia, would you mind getting up and reading, reading this to us in a nice, your voice is gone. Somebody who has a voice. Thank you. Yes, please. Okay. The least secret gold, even though it be cut into many figures, is one and is so spoken of. But we speak of many coins without finding any multiplication of the nature of gold by the number of coins. And for this reason, we speak of gold when it is contemplated in greater bulk, either in plate or in coin, as much. But we do not speak of it as many golds on account of the multitude of the material. As, then, the golden coins are many, but the gold is one, so too those who are exhibited to us severally in human nature, as Peter, James, and John are many, if the humanity in them is one. Thank you. All right, so there we've got a kind of model. You've got, like, a bunch of gold, and then the gold gets 
cut into you know, little pieces. And the gold itself remains one, even though it gets cut into multiple pieces. Or else, another way of looking at it, also contained in the same, the same passage, um, we've got Peter, James, and John, three humans, but he says the humanity in them is one. Sort of like the divinity in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, even though they are three divine persons. Does that work? He's clearly drawing on his Platonic background here, where Plato says, yeah, there's lots of beautiful things in the world, but beauty itself, with a capital B, is just this one thing. Um, but think about this for a minute. Lydia, would you stand up? Sadie, would you stand up? Caleb, would you come up here? All right, so, so here, we have, here we have three humans, and, and um, you know, in some sense we can say, yeah, their humanity is one. I mean, Caleb is a human, Sadie's a human, Lydia's a human. Their humanity is one. But are these three one in the same sense that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one? I see Joel like kind of... <laughs> You're not buying it. Okay, all right. Well, you know, Gregory recognizes that it's a little bit trickier than this. If you look at text G there, you'll see him voicing, you know, presumably the very objection that is kind of on your lips, namely, uh, these are three humans. We don't think there are three gods, though. There's just the one god, and that god is three persons. So what do we need to do to these three humans in order to make them one in the way that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one? I mean, would it help if we got rid of their bodies and instead just had, you know, three, like, spiritual beings here? They're looking at me like, what, <laughs> what is he going to do to us here? Um, here? Here's what Gregory says he thinks would help. If you look at text H, on the back page there. He says, humans, even if several are engaged in the same form of action, work separately each by themselves at the task they have undertaken, having no participation in their individual action with others who are engaged in the same occupation. So, you know, Caleb does his homework, Sadie does his, her homework, Lydia does her homework. Um, Thus, since among humans the action of each in the same pursuits is discriminated, they are properly called many, since each of them is separated from the others within his own environment, according to the special character of his operation. But, in the case of the divine nature, we do not similarly learn that the Father does anything by himself in which the Son doesn't work conjointly or that the Son has any special operation apart from the Holy Spirit, but every operation which extends from God to the creation and is named according to our variable conceptions of it has its origin from the Father, proceeds through the Son, and is perfected in the Holy Spirit. So suppose it were the case that every bit of homework that they undertook was a group project. <laughs> and they were each jointly involved in it, equally. 
Would that work? Would they then be, be one in the way that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one? Yeah? Say no. No? Yeah. They you guys can are each serving a, a different purpose. Okay. And they should be Okay, so I mean, it's the same purpose, like it's got its origin from the Father, it proceeds through the Son, it's perfected in the Holy Spirit, like that's not enough for you to, to buy the model? I'm, I'm kind of with you here personally. Uh, I guess that they have to have a manifestation that's Yeah, right. And, and, and there you might worry, well, you know, if, 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 they're, if they're doing exactly the same thing in every instance, do we really have three persons there? You know, have we... Yeah, have we that's what it would look like. Yeah. So I'm kind of worried about that too, personally. David? Well, I will say from the standpoint of the grader, if, if I'm grading the homework, uh-huh. if I'm grading the project, uh-huh. I have to grade it as one. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, as many worries as we might have, there's something very importantly true here that, you know, it, you, you don't have the persons of the Trinity kind of each doing their own thing. They, they, they work together and conjointly in, in every aspect, in, in creating and preserving and redeeming. Uh, Elaine? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like what would it look like if their group project if they each did things at different times or different planes of existence right. on their homework? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean so suppose that they're co eternal with one another. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah, right. We've gotten rid of their bodies. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, the son takes on flesh. He didn't eternally have flesh in his essence from the mm-hmm. So there's at least that. So, so part of my point in bringing this up is that this is very tricky stuff. And I want to pose to you guys in a moment the question of whether it matters. <laughs> <laughs> it? Like, like, like whether this model works or whether it doesn't work. Um, before I do that, let me get one more model on the table for you. Uh, and we can think about you know, which of these models you like better, and then does it really matter you know, how we choose between them? Um, fast forward in our story about 20 years and shift scene to uh, the, the Roman city of Hippo Regius. In, in North Africa, in present-day Algeria, actually. This is where Augustine became bishop in 395 AD. Um, by this point, uh, the Council of Constantinople had met in 381. 
And with the support of the Cappadocian fathers like Gregory of Nyssa, you know, whose model we've just been debating about, um, a new creed was issued, which is the one that we say every Sunday. So in that sense, we've got you know, a lot to thank Gregory for. Um, Augustine, however, uh, thought there was still some work to be done on the Trinity. Um, uh, he himself narrates famously his own conversion story uh, in his Confessions. Um, talks about how after years and years of his mother Monica praying for him, eventually he came around and, and, and converted to the faith. Um, one thing that he says paved the way for him to converting to Christianity was actually reading a Latin translation of this book, The Enneads, by Plotinus, that, that, that I've just been, been mentioning to you guys. Um, this is what Augustine says about it. He says, uh, you procured for me by the instrumentality of one inflated with monstrous pride certain books of the Platonists translated from Greek into Latin. And therein I read, not indeed in the same words, but to the self-same effect, that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Well, that's just the beginning of John's gospel, right? And Augustine is saying, I read that, not in those words, but in like words, in Plotinus. And Augustine says in the next passage, uh, this Plotinus stuff that I got a hold of, this was like the gold that the Egyptians gave to the Hebrews on their way out of Egypt. This was good stuff that the Israelites were meant to take up and make use of. Um, of course, that metaphor that he gives also contains a seed of warning, right? Because what are the Israelites doing with that gold just a few chapters later at the foot of Mount Sinai? Right? They've made an idol out of it. So, so Augustine warns us about that too. But he thinks there's good stuff in there, and he thinks that by taking Plotinus's advice and doing some introspection, looking within ourselves, uh, he says, using the eye of my soul uh, above my mind, uh, we can shed some light on the nature of the Trinity. Here's his model that he proposes. This is in his book called On the Trinity. He says, but as there are two things, the mind and the love of it, when it loves itself, so there are two things, the mind and the knowledge of it, when it knows itself. Therefore, the mind itself and the love of it and the knowledge of it are three things, and these three are one. And when they are perfect, they are equal. In these three, when the mind knows itself and loves itself, there remains a trinity, mind, love, and knowledge. And this trinity is not confounded together by any commingling, although they are each severally in themselves and mutually all in all, or each severally in each two, or each two in each. Therefore, all are in all. <laughs> <laughs> Augustine is saying if we, if, we, if we close our eyes for a minute 
and we form a concept, a thought, a, a mental word, if you will, that is directed back at ourselves. So we think about ourselves. We form a mental word proceeding from our minds, you'll note, and yet remaining within our minds that is about ourselves. And now we pose to ourselves the question, do, do we like what we see? Do we love ourselves? And hopefully the answer to that is yes, you know, to an extent. Uh, but suppose that that mental word about ourselves, directed back upon ourselves, were perfect knowledge. And suppose that it were furthermore perfect knowledge of something that was itself perfect. Our self-concept obviously isn't that way since we're, we're imperfect. Um, but suppose that from a perfect mind, preceded a perfect knowledge of that same mind, then the love proceeding from the mind and the mind's knowledge of itself would also be co-equal in perfection with the two of those. They would each remain within one another, right? You couldn't have the love without the mind and the mind's knowledge of itself, uh, nor could you have a mind without the ability to know itself and love itself. Uh, they are each, as Augustine says, all in all. Um, but that, Augustine reckons, offers us a way of thinking about how the Son proceeds from the Father and the Holy Spirit uh, from the Father and the Son. Um, nothing? Yeah, I have a question. <clears throat> yeah. Mind, so, you know, from the first and greatest thing, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and say mind. Yeah. Some, why do some scriptures not have mind in there? Is there a concept of the mind related to either the soul or the heart or some other aspect of the human makeup that is? Why, why is it rendered in some scripture translations and others not the mind? Yeah, so I, I, I don't know about I don't know about the scriptures. Why why some need it? Well, because we mentioned law of mind. Yeah, all the, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, it does seem to me that, um, uh, you know, thinking about this question, what, what does it mean to have three persons of the Trinity sheds important light on what we mean by talking about ourselves as persons. Uh, if you think of the three persons in the way that Gregory does, you've got like three separate centers of consciousness, right? And we're trying to figure out a way to, to you know, make those three separate centers of consciousness one in the way that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are supposed to be one. Augustine is giving us a model on which a person contains all of these things uh, within him or herself, mind, knowledge, love, uh, and, 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 and he's actually likening the persons of the Trinity to those different components. So in a sense, you've just got one center of consciousness there on his model, but it contains these different aspects to us. Augustine reckons this is what it means to say, uh, as, as Genesis 126 says, let, let us make man in our image. Um, yes, sir. Um, so something I have always been confused about by this is that on the one hand, the 
the negative theology, the emphasis on, like, oh, God is beyond rational thought, God's beyond human language, and then, and then you go and basically identify the Trinity with rational thought Good. itself. Yeah, right. And that is always Good. kind of, that's boggled my mind more than the Trinity itself almost. How do you yeah. have both of those things together? Good. So, so this, is, this is bringing out exactly the question that I wanted to pose to you all. Um, the, the bit of the litany that we read out at the start said, uh, we're thanking God for those who contend for the truth of the gospel and those who enable us to reflect on the mystery. And like, what exactly do those two have to do with one another? What exactly are we thanking God for that Gregory or Augustine or whoever else contributed here? Um, what, what I would suggest is that, and, and you don't tell me what you think about this, um, one of the reasons that we are able to reflect on the mystery uh, by, for example, reciting the mystery every Sunday in the creed and believing it, you know, this, this, is, this is the statement of our faith, uh, is that we have Gregory and Augustine and others contending for the truth of these things, um, both against heretics uh, like Sibelius, like Arius, and so forth, uh, and also against those who would say to us Christians, uh, you folks are, are simply irrational when you go around proclaiming that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. Um, what I think Gregory and Augustine in their different ways enable us to do is say, no, we are affirming something deeply mysterious there, that you're right, we're never going to get to the bottom of, we're never going to understand, we're never going to boggle out, but we don't have to sort of check our rationality card at the door of the church here when we walk in and, and we want to recite the creed. Uh, we, can, we can continue to be intellectually responsible, reasonable people uh, as Christians, uh, and, and, and yet reflect on the fact that God is mysterious in ways that no model is ultimately going to comprehend. Um, uh, Jim. No wonder you named your son Augustine. <laughs> uh, um, I love the fact that the time is up and we've come back to mysticism again. Trinitarian models. It's like, well, you know, is 
is the Trinity like a shamrock or you know like like a batch of gold chunked into coins or you know is it like the the, the mind thinking about itself and loving itself? Um, and and I, I guess what I would su suggest is is that uh, in a sense the answer is yes. Uh, you know none of these models fully comprehends what's going on with, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and yet, I think what these saints allow us to do by contending for the truth of the gospel is allows us to say, when we recite that creed on Sunday, this is truth. This is not partial truth. This is truth. Right? Mysterious though it may be for us, we are not, you know, saying like the blind man, you know, this thing is a fan, or this thing is a rope, or this thing is a... Uh, you know, what's the other one? Like a, a tree trunk or something? You know, yeah, exactly. Uh, and strictly speaking, what those blind men are saying is false. Like, it's not a tree trunk. It's, you know, the leg of an elephant. Rather, what we're saying is is true, right? It's the truth of the gospel. And, and I think I think we owe a great debt of gratitude to God for giving us saints like, like Gregory and, and Augustine that, that enable us to reflect on the mystery of that gratitude. All right. So I'll stand by it. Uh, do we have time for one more question or one more? All right. Um, a lot of this makes me think of the, the Apostle Paul and uh, his conversion experience, this big flash of light, which is just followed by blindness. Yeah. And it's the seeing and the not seeing. Yeah, yeah. And you know, he goes through this period of not seeing, but that, that doesn't change what he saw. Okay. And that doesn't take away that truth that he was exposed to. And he spends the rest of that scene arguing and debating, but it's all proceeding from that experience. That he had. Yeah, nice. That's actually what Gregory says in this little bit from the life of Moses. He says, yes, exactly. you know, the, the later theophany, like seeing God in the darkness, is not opposed to the first theophany, seeing God in the light of the burning bush. Like, we see God in the light first, but ultimately advance to, yeah, seeing him in the darkness. Um, that's good. Okay, don't make me very good. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> that's good.